Good morning. Please stand with me as we read, open God's scripture and read the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Um, if we've never been introduced, my name's Joey. I'm, I'm one of the pastors um, here at Faith, obviously. 10, 15... I don't know, 12 years ago, something like that, uh, I was in Bible college, central Iowa. And the Bible college where I did my undergrad work was just a 20-minute drive away from my grandparents' house. Now, I'd grown up a little farther away, hour, hour and 15 minutes or so from their house, but pretty much every weekend we went into Des Moines to uh, hang out with them, my dad's parents. Uh, but being closer to them meant I was able to spend more time with my grandparents than I, than I would have otherwise, uh, especially my grandma. Uh, my grandma was a character. We, we took her skydiving for her 80th birthday. Uh, and they took a video of the whole thing and gave it to her. And she said, I'm taking this to the senior center tomorrow. <laughs> skydiving was all we could come up with that beat paintballing the year before, in which she shot one of her own sons in the back, thinking he was on the other team. And we took her go-karting the year before that when she T-boned him into the wall. And he used to be a motorcycle racer. Anyway, um, so... I had a lot of fun with my grandma. We did a lot of uh, fun stuff together, went and saw movies, read books together, things like that. And we were driving back from somewhere. I don't remember what or even how we got on the topic, but we started talking about Jesus. I was a first-year Bible college student. Uh, when I had told my grandmother that I felt God was calling me into the ministry, she set up an appointment with uh, her priest at St. Augustine's uh, so that he could talk me into becoming Catholic. Uh, I told him I wanted to get married, and he said, okay, well, then maybe you should go to Bible college. <laughs> so, but she had tried, and, and I knew she, was, she and my grandpa were faithful to their Catholicism, very faithful to it. They have 11 kids. And uh, I wanted to talk to her about, about Jesus. I wanted to share the gospel with her because I knew they were faithful to Catholicism, but I didn't know if they were faithful to Christ. I didn't know if uh, that religion had moved into a, a relationship with Jesus by by faith alone. So as I was talking to my, my grandma about who Jesus is, what he's done, uh, I quoted these verses that we've just heard read to her. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in my 19-year-old naivety, I thought, you know, here it is. It's the silver bullet. Uh, you can't argue with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's, it's super clear right there. Been saved by grace through faith, not of works. So I, I quoted it to her, and she said, I don't agree with that. I was like, well, but how can you not agree with it? Like, it's, it's in the Bible. That's what it says. How can you not agree with it? But it was not what um, she'd been taught. It was not what, what her priest had, had taught. Uh, she'd learned something more like, yes, God gives grace. You're saved by grace, and that grace comes through faith, but then you need to take it and run with it. You've got to do something, some meritorious works to prove that that grace, that faith is real, and then God will save you. Well, it was 500 years ago that that same belief, that same teaching is what impelled uh, the monk Martin Luther to go on his quest to reform the church. He wanted to look back to scripture, to the church fathers, to reclaim the gospel and re-articulate it in a new context that had lost it. And one of the key things that Luther articulated is that salvation does not come through faith and meritorious works. It comes through faith alone. Now, 500 years after Luther, the, the Roman church has still reemphasized its position on faith and meritorious works. Uh, so it's a teaching that separates Catholics and Protestants. But I would suspect that even as we Protestants would put ourselves consistently on the side of faith alone, in theory, in practice, we are perhaps much closer to our Catholic brothers and sisters than we think. We'll talk about that more later. We're taking the month of October to explore the five solas of the Reformation, the five alones that summarize the theology recovered by the Reformation movement. So these five alones are statements that articulate primarily the differences between Catholicism of its time and the Reformation. And so far we've explored, just by way of a quick recap, we've explored Scripture alone, sola scriptura, as the basis for authority in our faith. Uh, scripture alone holds the primary place of authority for communicating to us what God has said. Scripture, not tradition. The week after that, Jeff explains what Christ alone, solus Christus, means as the foundation of our salvation, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He is our great high priest. Jesus, not human priests, Christ alone. Last week, Tom took us through grace alone, sola gratia, the idea that God chooses us and saves us entirely by his grace. You know, that salvation is not a meritocracy. It's not something you earn. It's, it's God's unearned love and action that is the basis of our salvation. It's grace, not merit. Well, today, we're turning to the fourth of these alones, of these solas, faith alone, sola fide, faith, not works. And since we've been exploring these five solos through the book of Ephesians, I invite you to turn with me there, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you're grabbing one of those black Bibles that's under the chair in front of you, it's on page 1160. You can find it quick and follow along. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. Now, last week, Tom talked about grace. This week, we're talking about faith, and both in the Reformation formula have alone tacked onto them, grace alone, faith alone. Uh, It's not that salvation is one or the other. They're not against each other. They are in reference to different aspects of our salvation. Grace alone is the basis of our salvation. Faith alone is the means. In other words, from from God's perspective, we are saved by grace, not our worthiness, not our merit, not anything that we've earned. But from our perspective, we are saved by faith, not through our works. Again, we don't do anything to earn it. Salvation is by faith alone. So as we explore this idea of sola fide, faith alone, there's a couple of questions we're going to wrestle with. What is faith? Um, How is it engendered in us? What's the point of saying faith alone? And then we'll talk about a few application points that come out of this exploration of faith. So as we jump in, we'll just consider this first question, what is faith? What is faith? Because it's one of those concepts, we throw the word around a lot, we've named ourselves after it, we, uh, you know, we use the word faith quite a bit to mean something like belief, uh, but we, for the context of this discussion, we need to put just a little bit more meat on that definition. Um, So I'm going to start out by explaining maybe a little bit of what faith is not. Faith is not blind trust. Faith is not finding the most absurd thing possible and then believing it against everything your head tells you simply because it's absurd. Faith is not a, a leap into the dark, a jump, hoping something is there. It's not an Indiana Jones style Put your foot up and then just step out into the abyss and hope that something will catch you. Those things aren't, they're not faith. On the more positive side, I like the way that C.S. Lewis defines faith in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted. Now, I've only been put under anesthesia for surgery a couple times in my life. Uh, Most recently, it was about 10 years ago, when I was 24 and weighed a little less than I do now, but snored like a fat old man. And it was keeping my wife, Jenna, awake, so she made me go to an ENT to take a look at what was going on inside my head. So he did a scan, and the first thing he determined uh, was, yes, there's a brain going in there, notwithstanding the effects of seminary and all of that. But... After determining that, he had diagnosed my problem as septal deviations and turbinate hypertrophy. I have no idea what that is. I didn't even know how to say it. I had to ask Google how to pronounce hypertrophy. Uh, Whatever that was, I was told it basically meant he was going to put me under anesthesia and then carve out chunks of the inside of my nose so I could breathe easier, which sounded exciting, so we decided to do it. Um, Not really so I could breathe easier. I I breathe fine, but so Jenna could sleep easier. Now, I know, my reason has told me, I have accepted it, that anesthesia works. I know when they apply it, I'm going to fall asleep. It's going to knock me out. I'm not going to feel a thing, at least at the moment. Uh, I trust that the doctors administering the anesthesia have done the math correctly. They know the right amount to give me, and it's, it's going to work. Uh, I have faith in the hospital system, in the techs who are assisting with the surgery, and the nurses who will facilitate my recovery. But you know, when, when they wheel you back there and they start an IV 
and it's cold, and you start to see the trays with all the knives and instruments of torture that they've got lined up there, and there's the mop in the bucket for all the blood, and, and, and it's cold, and you're not wearing as much clothes as you thought, and you have to write yes and no so they don't get the wrong side. You know, it's like, I know what my reason says and has accepted to be true. My faith... My reason is not the problem, it's, it's my faith is waning because what my eyes can see, my sight is telling me something completely different than what my reason has told me. My sight is saying, run, like get out of here, I don't care if she can't sleep, you don't want to do this. It's hard to keep your faith intact when your sight is telling you something else. That's what Lewis is talking about when he says faith is the art of holding on to what our reason has once accepted. My reason tells me through research, through the testimony of others, that by and large doctors know what they're doing. But Lewis goes on to say, it's not reason that's taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It's my imagination and emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. My faith could remain intact if my emotions and my imagination didn't just run away with me. See, faith is not a a leap into the dark or a step into the abyss or a blind trust. So when we say that faith is holding on to something our reason has once accepted as true, we're getting closer to the idea of what faith is more positively. Holding on to something we've believed in spite of changing moods and circumstances. But another question I said we'd wrestle with a little bit is how does that faith come to us in the first place? Now, any dictionary is going to tell you that faith is basically trust or confidence. If you read a philosophical dictionary, they'll tell you that faith is trust or confidence in the testimony of someone else. If you put that in a theological context, that means faith is trust or confidence in God and what he said about himself, who he is and what he's done, which overall I think is a pretty good definition. Because faith, when we look at just the concept, whether in a theological context or not, whether you're talking about faith in Jesus or faith in your geometry teacher, faith is trust, it's confidence in a person. And that what that person tells you is true is, in fact, true. If you think about it, the amount of knowledge that any one of us could come to if we limited ourselves to only those things that we ourselves had explored and proved to be true, that amount of knowledge would be very limited. Most of what I know, I know because I've taken it on faith from parents, teachers, some other authority. Very little in my life have I experientially proved to be true for myself. Most of it, I believe, because of some authority. And that's true for everyone, whether you're religious or not. You can't not believe something on faith from what an authority tells you. So this isn't really a discussion about who has faith and who doesn't. It's just what the faith is, is in. I'll give you an illustration from math. Uh, when I learned the Pythagorean theorem, the A squared plus B squared equals C squared, you can find the length of a hypotenuse of a right triangle by adding together the squares of both sides, that whole thing. You guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, some of you just got irrationally excited when I said that Pythagorean theorem, so we'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> others of you just felt your heart sinking like, oh no, I'm back in sixth grade. Well, when, when Mr. Lawrenson put the Pythagorean theorem up on the board and he said, hey, look, the, the sum of the squares of the two, 
legs of a right triangle are always equal to the square of the hypotenuse of that triangle. We're like, I don't know what that means, but you're smart and you're my teacher, so I believe you. And I took it on faith, faith in an authority, faith in a teacher. And then he taught me how to use the Pythagorean theorem and, and forced me, in fact, to use it many times over and over again as I answered various math questions. And I found that every time I applied it and applied it correctly, it gave me an answer that gave me a good grade. And so I determined, you know what? I think Mr. Lawrenson was telling the truth. I think the, that the sum of the squares of the sides of a right triangle do actually equal the square of the hypotenuse. Now, all that I said, I still don't know what it means. And, and I really can't prove it to be true to you in a mathematical sense where you prove it. I don't even know how to do that. I'm, some of you can, I'm sure, but I can't. Somebody told me after first hour, they're like, it's really simple. I said, no, it's not. <laughs> but thanks for your faith in me. But uh, I had to, here's the point. You have to, in almost every area of your life, you have to believe something on faith first in order to find out if it's true or prove it to be true. It's the way it works in math. It's the way it works in geometry, it's, which is math. That's what I just said. I meant to say geography. I have not been to every country of the world. I'm assuming the maps are accurate. It's, it's the same in whatever subject you're in, language, science, math, whatever. You have to assume some things to be true in order to try them out and find out if they are true or not. Now, let's dial that in and apply it to God. Faith in God is essentially trust or confidence that God is reliable and trustworthy and that what he tells us is true is, in fact, true. Faith in God is belief based on testimony. What we've heard from one another through Scripture, from Jesus, from God himself, from the Holy Spirit working in us. But just like with the Pythagorean theorem... I have to exercise faith in God and in what he says before I can then experientially prove it to be true. And when I say prove it to be true, I, I certainly do not mean in a mathematical sense, right? In a mathematical sense, you can prove a theorem by lining up all the formulas on both sides, manipulating them in some magical way, and then boom, it proves it. You, you can't do that with God because proving God to be true is like proving a friendship to be true or a marriage to be true or some other love relationship to be true. You can't apply mathematical proofs to a relationship. If you tried, it wouldn't go well. You go to your, your spouse or your child or your parent and say, you know, according to my calculations, you've expressed love for me exactly 7.183% fewer times this week than you did last week, which is down 2.6 times since the same quarter last year. Should I be worried? It's, relationships don't work like that. Relationships don't work like that in any friendship or business partnership or marriage or dating relationship or anything. You have to assume certain things are true about a person in order to find out that they are, in fact, true. Now, when it's another person, we tend to approach that or, or we tend to extend that faith in the first place because of some sense about the person, some, some sense about their character, the way our first interaction with them has gone, per, gone, perhaps the testimony of what someone else has told us about that person. He's a really great guy. You should get to know him. When it comes to our relationship with God, we have the same thing in the Holy Spirit. 
coming to us even before we realize we're considering who God is and whether or not he is true and beginning to impress on us, to strangely warm our hearts, as Wesley said, to to impress on us that, yes, God is true. What he says is true. You can trust him. These are the words of life. So when we talk about faith, whether it's faith in God, faith in your geometry teacher, faith in your parents, faith in your spouse, faith in whatever, there's always an existential and an epistemological side to it, meaning there's always a feeling side. What's, what's the relationship? How do I feel about this? And there's a fact side. Can I trust the content of what this person is telling me? Is it actually true? Do I know it to be true because I know that person to be true? So faith in God is trusting that he is trustworthy, believing that what he says is true is, in fact, true. Now, that definition of faith is not really all that different from the Roman Catholic definition of faith, the the faith that we apply in philosophical circles or just in general life experience. Uh, So the Reformers meant something a little more than that when they said faith alone, No one was quibbling about the fact, do we need faith or do we not need faith? It was, is faith alone? Is it on its own or is it not? And some have said this is the main point that the Reformers recovered. See, the medieval Catholic Church uh, was teaching that although God gives grace, people have to take it and run with it. In other words, they have to do good works in order to improve on grace and merit even more grace. Uh, Tom pointed out really well last week, Luther's crisis of faith came when he took that teaching, applied it to his own life, and realized he could never know if he had run fast enough, if he had run far enough, if he had done enough. And that, combined with his study of Romans, which I'll talk about more in a a bit, uh, led him to realize that good works, earning more grace, does not justify us, does not save us, does not repair the relationship with God. We are justified, not when God says you've earned it, but when God says I'm giving it to you. We are justified when God declares us righteous because, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, through faith we have trusted in what God has done for us in Christ. So justification, being made right with God, being declared righteous, by faith alone, became known as the article by which the church stands or falls, the indispensable sum of the gospel, another person wrote. A third theologian said, the retrieval of Paul's doctrine that God declares us righteous on the merits of Christ alone through faith alone. Luther felt that the church in his day had lost the fact That justification is freely given, not earned. That God is the one who is acting first in righting the wrong relationship between sinful human beings and himself. That the justification he grants comes by our faith, not by our works. He's saying faith or justification is not about having to become righteous, about taking a little bit of the grace that God gives us and then running with it, building on it, earning justification from it. It's... Justification is not a a reward granted to us once we've achieved a certain level of righteousness. Once we've done enough things, then we get it. We can't work hard on our own to become good enough for God to then say, yeah, you've you've worked hard, you've been good, it's the end of your life, I'm going to grant you entrance 
to heaven. Justification by faith alone is the awarding of right standing with God, an undeserved divine gift. That's what I desperately wanted to get across to my grandma that day in the car. You don't have to keep striving. You don't have to keep running. You don't have to keep working. You don't have to keep worrying. You don't have to keep wondering, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I confessed enough? Have I taken the sacraments enough? Have I done enough with the grace God has given me that he'll look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant? God would accept her on faith alone as long as that faith is alone. Of course, the problem of trying to justify ourselves, trying to earn our way to heaven or earn our acceptance with God is not a problem that is just confined to Catholicism or religiosity in general. Uh, We're pretty good at it ourselves. There's a version of justification of works that is alive and well even in our circles. You know, it goes something like this. There's a, uh, there's a high church version. Some of you have a background in a more liturgical tradition where uh, you take the sacraments, you go to services, you make yourself open to God, and then God comes in and he does what you can't do. He finishes the job. He saves you once you've gotten your heart and your general behavior into the right place. There's an evangelical version, more of the low church style like us, uh, that says, you know, I have to, I can't just accept Jesus, I have to really give my life to Jesus. I have to, I have to surrender to him, I have to be unconditionally committed to Jesus. I have to, to not just make him my savior, but I also have to actively make him my Lord before he'll save me. In other words, I have to, I have to get my heart all screwed up into the right state where I'm unconditionally committed, I'm willing to go anywhere and do anything, and then once I've done that work in me first, then Jesus will come and God will save us and he'll do the rest, what I couldn't do myself. There's another version that's alive in our churches too that, that says if I, if I am just in touch with myself, if I'm willing to live an authentic life, if I am authentically me before God, then he will accept that authenticity and save me. He'll take me as long as I'm me and not trying to repress myself or fake it or do something different or live by some rule or code on his behalf. And each of those perspectives have little in, well, they have a lot in common with the Roman Catholic perspective that God gives us a little bit of grace and then we work on it. Even though we say we're Protestants, we believe in faith alone. Now, it's, I don't say any of that by way of condemnation because we justify ourselves. We have to justify ourselves in all areas of life. That is the way the world works. We have to in order to live in this world. Uh, jobs only open for us if we can justify our skills and abilities to the extent that we can perform that job. The schools only open to us if we can justify our educational background and our credentials for going and learning in that environment. A sports team that you try out for, it it only opens for you if you can justify your athletic ability and that your athletic ability is in that sport and that you're going to be a contribution to the team. Yeah, There's a thousand other ways we justify ourselves on a daily basis, every area of our lives. We have to in order to operate in this world. Uh, So it's just our, our kind of our 
built-in innate desire to justify ourselves before God, too. Whether we take our committed hearts or the fact that we're in the service this morning or that we gave some money when the plate came by or that we're willing to go anywhere and do anything and we take those things and say, look, God, look at what I've done for you. Aren't you glad you chose me? Or God, look at all these things I'm doing for you. Won't you accept me? Both are examples of us justifying ourselves. That's not justification by faith alone. Now, Luther came to his realization of the primacy of faith for salvation as he was reading and teaching and studying through Romans. The first verse that kind of caught him was Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. And then verse 3.28, Luther translated it, we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law, whether the Jewish law or any attempt to justify yourself. We keep reading Romans 4.5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And it was in the act of thinking these passages together that Luther realized if God justifies the ungodly and it's the faith of the ungodly that counts as righteousness, nothing I do, no work, no attempt to follow the law, be authentic to myself, justify myself by his monkery, he said, none of that counts as righteousness, only faith. No works of the law, no justifying of ourselves does any good, however pious it may be. Notice especially Romans 4, 5, where it says that God justifies the ungodly. Ungodly is where we were when God justified any one of us. Ungodly, meaning absolutely unworthy. Now, the, the Greek word there is not just you know, no God or something like that. Uh, the Greek word actually has this meaning of having spit in his face. When we spit in his face, turned our backs on him, told God, you can go to hell for all I care. That's when he said, I'll justify you. Now, not because we were saying those things, but because we recognized that was who we are. That's where we were when he justified us, absolutely unworthy, with nothing we can add. Now, if we think about faith alone and try to think of how it applies to us today, I've already hinted at the fact that we say we believe it, and yet most of us, myself included, my innate reaction is to, if I, at least, if I'm not trying to justify God accepting me, I'm at least trying to justify the fact that he has chosen me and, and want to make it look like he made a good decision. So we should ask ourselves, like, what kind of a Christian am I? Am I the one who's trying to work and add things to my resume for God so that he looks at me and says, I made a good choice? Or he looks at me and says, yeah, you're a good one. I'm going to choose you. Or are we the kind of Christian, we sang about it earlier, who says, I have nothing in my hands. All I do is cling to Christ. See, both types of Christians will confess their sins. Both types of Christians will repent. Both types of Christians will tell God where they've done wrong. They'll ask forgiveness. Both will repent when they've sinned against him. But only the Christian who relies on faith alone is the one who repents not just of their sin, but also of their righteousness. 
what makes you a Christian is not that you confess your sins. That's part of it. It's not the sum total of it. It may be good. Confessing your sins is good, but it may just lead you down the path to being a Pharisee or being just religious, somebody who is constantly working to make God accept them by confessing things. What makes us Christians is when we repent of our self-justification. When we say to God, I have done so much wrong and I have done so much right for all the wrong reasons. I have tried to earn your salvation when I can. I've tried to come in and clean the place up a little bit before you come in and do the rest. And the very act of cleaning myself up is me saying to God, I don't need you. Turning around and walking the other way. The very act of trying to screw up my heart into some state where, I'm, uh, where God can come in and use me is me turning my back on him. At the, at the end of one of the very last short stories that Flannery O'Connor wrote, uh, her main character was a very self-righteous woman. And she's given a vision of a vast parade of souls marching into heaven. And she sees many in that parade that she did not expect to be there. Freaks and lunatics, it says, dancing and jumping with joy. But bringing up the end of the procession, was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They, of all those who were singing, they alone were on key. Yet, she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Even their virtues were being burned away. By virtues, she means all the ways we carry ourselves, all the ways we, we behave and present ourselves and work and earn and strive and collect and justify ourselves before God. Our self-justification our identification of something in our lives that makes us acceptable to God, that makes us worthy, our self-justification is perhaps the last great sin of which we need to repent. It too will be burned away in the end if we do. The Apostle Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Let me explain. He says, this is not your own doing. This whole idea of salvation is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, you've given us a gift that we don't deserve. We've, human society, human beings throughout time have worked to justify themselves in one arena or another, and especially before you, but before you, all of our justification falls to nothing. Help us, Lord, to see who we are in front of you. To see that you accept us. You accept us just by our faith. Not by faith plus anything else. Not by our works, not by our authenticity, not by our striving, not by our good behavior, not by our southern manners, not by our Minnesota nice, not by our fact that we dressed up to come to church this morning. We plead nothing but the cross of Christ. 
crucify everything else on that cross. In Jesus' name, amen.